Uh, just as a quick recap of last week, uh, we are, or we were in Colossians chapter four, verse nine, uh, and we were also looking at the very short letter of Philemon um, that Paul writes. So what we found is, as Paul is wrapping up his letter again, he's speaking about these ministry partners, right? These people that he does ministry with, and that uh, as he is giving us this list of people that he's doing ministry with. Uh, he's giving us insights, things that we can learn about church, things that we can learn about ministry uh, that we can take for ourselves. Because again, we are all called to church. We're all called to ministry. Uh, and so in the verse that we saw last week and in the letter, the other letter, uh, Philemon, that we looked at last week, uh, we looked at a couple people, one of them being a man named Onesimus. Uh, Onesimus is a slave who uh, has most likely stolen. We don't know exactly what he did, but he did something against his master. Uh, and we believe that it was that he stole from his master, Philemon. Uh, and now he's ran away. He's run away. So he's a runaway slave. Uh, he encounters Paul. He encounters Paul's ministry while Paul is in prison. And um, now he's serving. Right? So he encounters the gospel. He gets saved. Uh, and then now, so his life is turned around. And now he's helping Paul in whatever it is that Paul needs, you know, while Paul is in prison. Um, and so that's Onesimus. And now Philemon, the man who Onesimus ran away from, uh, he's a wealthy Roman citizen who also got saved. He's also encountered the gospel. He gets saved. And now the church that's meeting in Colossae, right? So the, the people that Paul is writing to, to the church that Paul is writing to, is actually meeting in Philemon's house. And so Philemon, again, he receives the gospel and now he's opened up his home to be the church uh, for, uh, for the people in Colossae. Paul is, again, while he's in prison, he's using Onesimus to kind of, you know, to, to serve while he's in prison, while he's in chains. Uh, Onesimus has made himself available to serve. And one of the ways that Paul is using him is to now go deliver these letters uh, that he's writing to these different churches. And so Paul is now sending Anisibus back to Colossae, back not just to the city that he ran away from, uh, but now back to the very home, back to the very master that he ran away from. Right? And he's doing this not just so that the, the, that the church would you know, receive this letter, but he's doing so because he has this hope that this relationship between Anisibus and Philemon would be restored. But not restored just as master and slave, He's hoping that this relationship would be restored in a new way, uh, that this relationship would be restored as brothers. He's asking Philemon to receive Onesimus, this slave, not just as a slave. He says, receive him as a brother, receive him as an equal in Christ. And so in that relationship, in that dynamic, uh, there was three things that we learned, uh, three things that we took away again about ministry, about church, and so on. Uh, the first one being, the gospel can save anyone, right? The gospel can save, can save anyone. Um, there are, when we look at these three people, Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus, they have vastly different backgrounds, right? They, they are not the same in any way, shape, or form. Paul, who formerly was a Jew, he is a Pharisee, right? He's a religious expert, and it was his mission. He made it his mission. He thought it was actually God's calling upon him uh, to destroy this thing called the church, to destroy this movement. And so he is out persecuting Christians. He is out having them arrested. He is, you know, uh, having them killed. This is his mission. This is what he is doing. And he's thinking he's doing a good job. And then, of course, he encounters Christ. And then you see how his life is transformed. Uh, Philemon is, again, a wealthy Roman citizen who, being a, uh, a Roman citizen, he would have worshipped a whole pantheon of gods. All these gods that we hear about in, uh, in Roman and Greek mythology, he would have been no different than anybody else. He would have worshipped all of these gods all at once uh, and thinking that's exactly what you're supposed to do. And again, of course, he encounters the gospel. And then now you see how his life is transformed. Uh, transformed. His home has now become the church. Onesimus, a slave. Right? He's, he's nobody. He's less than a human. This is what people would have seen as him. 
He's not even, a, he's not a citizen. He's not, a, he's less than any, he's property. He's stolen from his master. He's run away. And now he's encountered the gospel, gets saved, and is now being used by Paul in the ministry. These people who have vastly different backgrounds, none of them disqualified from being saved by the gospel. The gospel can save anyone. And yet, unfortunately, so many times we do this, whether we disqualify others or sometimes we even disqualify ourselves to be saved. We say, because of our past, oh, you know, that person could never be encountered by God. That person could never be reached by God. That person could never be saved by God. That person could never, you know, God could never speak to that person through that person, so on and so forth, because of their past or how it is that they're living or what it is that they're doing, so on and so forth. We disqualify people because of their works. Or sometimes we disqualify ourselves. Like, you know, you don't know what I've done in my past. You don't know what I've been. You don't know the things that I do. You don't know those things. And there's so, you know, therefore, there's no way God could ever speak to me. There's no way God could ever reach me. There's no way God could ever save me. Right? We disqualify others or we disqualify ourselves because of our works. And that's the whole point of the gospel. None of us were qualified because of our works. All of us are actually disqualified. It's true. Not a single one of us were qualified to be saved because of our works. We were only qualified because of his work. We were only called because of his work. We were only saved because of his work. None of us did anything to be saved. We didn't do it. The Bible says that we were dead in our sins. If we're dead, how do you save yourself? If you are dead, how do you perform CPR on yourself? How do you perform surgery on yourself? You can't, you're dead. So you didn't do anything to save yourself. It wasn't anyone's work that, that, that saved you apart from Christ. So all of us were disqualified by our own works. All of us have been qualified because of Christ's work. Right? So the gospel can save anyone. It's the power of the gospel to save, not the power of your works that saves. That was number one. Number two, So then we said uh, that we are called to be hearers and doers of the word. So Paul is calling Philemon to do something, again, that's very big, that's completely unheard of. Paul is, uh, you know, asking Philemon, even though Onesimus, uh, his slave, has wronged him, even though uh, Philemon has this legal claim, this legal, or not, um, like a legal right, I should say, uh, to have Onesimus either being punished or even worse, he has a legal claim to do so, but Paul is asking him, not to do that. Paul is saying, don't take vengeance. Don't do that. He's asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus. But again, he's not asking him to just forgive him. He's not asking him to just like overlook the faults and say, okay, you know what? We, we acknowledge that something has been wrong, but I'm not going to punish you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive you and I will bring you back as a slave. I will do that. He's not, Paul is not asking that. Paul is saying, I want you to go above and beyond that. I want you to receive him again, not as a slave, but as a brother. He says in his letter, the letter directly to him, he says, receive him as if you were receiving me, Paul the Apostle. Treat him the same way. So he's asking Philemon to do something that's completely unheard of. And he's appealing to him saying, remember the forgiveness that Christ has given you. Remember this partnership that we have in the Lord. Remember the work that Christ has done for you. Remember C.S. Lewis said, uh, God, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And that's what he's appealing to, to Onesimus or to, uh, to Philemon. He's saying, remember that forgiveness that Christ gave you. So he's asking him to be not just a hearer of the word, but to be now a doer of it. He's saying, you have received this gospel. You have received this forgiveness. Now here's your opportunity to show it, to be a doer. And then the last thing that we saw was that church ministry, the body of Christ, this relationship that we have with each other can get very, very, very personal. Uh, Paul is getting involved in some very personal matters here with Philemon, with Onesimus. These are some very personal issues that he's getting involved in. And we said that that's necessary. 
We need this in the church, uh, that we are required to lovingly and boldly uh, speak into each other's lives and that we are also called to humbly allow those around us to speak into our lives. So church, in order for that to happen, that gets personal. So those are the things that we saw last week. Uh, This week, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And this is going to be part three, I guess, uh, this little mini-series of Paul's ministry partners uh, that we're looking at and, you know, what we can learn about church, about ministry. And so again, Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And it says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my coworkers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Read that one more time. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my coworkers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. So Paul is, again, he's wrapping up his letter to the Colossian church. Uh, We're getting actually pretty close to to being done. Uh, After today, we actually only have three more weeks uh, of our study of Colossians. So uh, I'm not sure what we're going to be covering next, but um, yeah, only three more weeks and we're finally finally done. That'll be 40 weeks, by the way. Uh, Yeah, it's a long time. So... Um, so Paul, again, is he's wrapping up his letter to the Colossian church with this list of names of people that he's doing ministry with. Uh, and then what we find at least about these people, these are people uh, who have proved to be a great comfort to him. Right? Uh, and so there's going to be two things that we look at today, again, about church, about ministry, about what we can learn, take away from it. And those two things are this. One, thank God for friends. Thank God for friends. Friendship is so important within the body of Christ. Thank God for them. And two, Thank God for forgiveness. Okay, So those two things are going to be what we're looking at today. What Again, what we can learn about church, ministry, as Paul is talking about his ministry partners here, friends and forgiveness. So first one, thank God for friends. Paul starts this off with my fellow prisoner Aristarchus. So who is, who is this person? Who is Aristarchus? He is one of Paul's traveling companions. Uh, he's listed a few times when you read through the book of Acts, especially through the, uh, the end of the book of Acts. Um, so he is somebody that's traveling with Paul, that's doing ministry with Paul. Uh, he's somebody that's going through it with Paul. And so Paul, you know, will talk quite a bit, you know, about his struggles, about the things that he faces. And what we find out is Aristarchus is one of these people that goes through some of these things with him. Uh, for example, uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 and, and, and on, uh, there's a big riot in the city of Ephesus. So while Paul is doing ministry there, Paul's ministry is going very, very well there, right? And so God is using him mightily. God is speaking to him and through him mightily. God is performing miracles uh, through him. And so as a result, there's a lot of people who are being saved. I mean, a lot of people are just coming to Christ, to know Christ. So the church is growing uh, rapidly uh, in the city of Ephesus. The problem, well, quote unquote, the problem is that so many people are getting saved that it's actually having an effect on the city. In the sense of like, it's affecting local government, local politics, it's affecting the economy. It's having an issue. It's having an effect on these things. And that's actually the reason why there's this big riot that starts uh, in Acts chapter 19. So uh, being a pagan city, being a, a city that worshipped all these Roman gods and goddesses, they had a lot of, they had a lot of idols. And now it, throughout the Roman Empire, though they worshipped all of these gods and goddesses, a lot of times, you know, one city might be a uh, kind of a quote unquote hub 
you know, for or a a a, um, a mainstay for one god or one goddess, like one god or goddess would be kind of like the main patron god of that city. Though they worship all of them, like one place would have like the main temple for that god or goddess, and that would be the the place where you would come to worship that specific one. And so Ephesus uh, was the the city of Artemis. Her name was Artemis, the goddess of uh, the goddess Ar- Artemis. Excuse me. And so uh, there's a lot of people. Because, you know, there's a lot of people who come to worship Artemis in this place, there's a lot of people who make idols for Artemis. You know, there's a lot of people who go to the temple to bring money for Artemis and sacrifices to Artemis. What happens is there's so many people who are being saved. So many people are accepting the gospel. So many people are now rejecting the worship of Artemis and all these other gods. No one is going to the temple anymore. No one is buying these idols anymore. No one is buying these shrines either for, you know, for their homes or for their shops or for the, no one is buying these things anymore. And so now it's beginning to affect the economy. And so this one person, this one silversmith by the name of uh, Demetrius, he begins to recognize this. He says, this, this guy, Paul has come into our city. He is disrespecting our gods. You know, he's disrespecting Artemis. He's hurting my pocketbook. Why are we allowing this to happen? Why, why do we just say this is okay? Why do we just stand by and do nothing? And so now he begins this, this big riot. He starts this big uproar about how this guy, Paul, and his ministry is just ruining their city. And so they, you know, everybody seems to agree. They're like, yeah, he's right. No one is buying these things anymore. No one is like, this, he's ruining the way that we do life here. Why have we just done nothing? And so this big uproar starts, this big uh, riot starts. They, Paul isn't necessarily right there in the middle. They can't find him. But the big crowd grabs a couple of Paul's traveling companions, one named Gaius and the other one named uh, Aristarchus, the guy that we're talking about here. They grab them. They rush into the city center. They rush into the theater and they begin shouting. They just begin chanting. There's this big mob that forms. And now if you kind of, you know, put yourself in the middle of the situation, these people have no idea. Are they going to be beaten? Are they going to be stoned? Are they going to be killed? They, they don't know. They've just been grabbed by this huge mob that's shouting, that's shouting and, 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 and rioting and, you know, cheering for Artemis and this, that, and the other. Paul actually wants to go out in front of the crowd once he hears about this riot. Paul wants to go out and address the crowd, but it's so bad that his, uh, you know, the other disciples and some of the city officials who are, happen to be friends with Paul, they don't let him. They say, it's too hot. It's too much. If you go out there, we don't know what's going to happen. So we're not, they, they literally restrained him from going out to meeting them. And so Paul's traveling companions are literally stuck in this riot with no help, so to speak. They're stuck. They don't know what to do. Finally, after two hours of just shouting and yelling and this, that, and the other, one of the city officials comes up. He kind of, you know, he's like, hey, by the way, this, this is illegal. You know, we're in the, uh, uh, you know, we, we could all get in trouble for rioting and we could all get ticketed for this and this, that, and the other. So we need to disperse immediately, this, that, and the other. So he finally quiets everybody down. Thankfully, nothing came out of it more than that. But it, it got intense. It got very, very intense for a moment. In the very next chapter, they go to Macedonia. They do ministry there. They go to Greece. They're doing ministry there. They stay in Greece for a little while, for three months. After three months of doing ministry there, Paul gets word, gets word uh, there's this big plot from Jews, from, the, uh, from a group of Jews there, who they're, they're plotting against his life. So they plot against him. He hears about it. So they have to flee. They have to leave. Who is with Paul when he has to flee? Uh, Timothy was one of them. Timothy being the, you know, the letters first and second Timothy where Paul's right, that, that Timothy. Uh, Tychicus, the guy that we learned about a couple weeks ago, he was with him. And Art, or, uh, Aristarchus, another one. I'll just say, it's not like easy traveling with Paul. It's, it's not light. It's not, you know, it's, it's dangerous for the most part. Very rarely is, is it like smooth sailing. Very rarely is it, it's, it's very dangerous to, to, to travel with Paul. And yet Aristarchus is someone that's traveling with him. 
when Paul is in prison, again, he's in prison when he's writing this letter to the Colossians, right? He's still writing, he's still, you know, teaching, he's still encouraging the hearts of the believers of all these churches that he's, that he's writing to. Who's one of the prisoners that was with him, at least for a time being? Aristarchus. He says, my fellow prisoner, Aristarchus. It's not much more that's written about him, at least biblically, but uh, church history says that when Paul, it's believed that Paul was beheaded um, by the uh, emperor Nero, and it's believed that Aristarchus was with him, who was also beheaded for his faith. Thank God for a friend like that, who's willing to stick with you like that. Paul says himself, these people have proved to be a great comfort to me. Paul went through it, right? Paul has, has, Paul's life is very difficult. And yet here is a friend, here are multiple friends who Paul says, these people have proved to be a great comfort to me. Friendship in the body of Christ, friendship, biblically speaking, is not looked down upon. It is not something that is minimized. Friendship is so, so, so important within the body of Christ. Friendship is not, so, you know, uh, meant to be something to be taken lightly within the body of Christ. We relate to each other on, not just us here, but just anywhere, when I say just to, to other people. We relate to people on some of the most superficial, some of the most basic things. I promise you right now, if Naz and I were to step outside and we see somebody wearing a Phoenix Suns jersey, a Kevin Durant jersey, or a Steve Nasher, if that person has the number 13 jersey on right now, that's my best friend. Easy. Within two minutes, I, I, will, I will start a conversation with that person. I love that jersey. Where'd you get it from? Are you actually a fan? Boom. Done. Best friend for life. Over a sports team. Over a team, you know, over, over people who, who don't know me, who definitely don't know me, who definitely don't care about me. They don't know me. They, 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 they have no business with me. And yet over some, the most basic, over the most superficial things, I can easily relate to somebody that I don't know. Easily. And yet the church, this family that God has brought together, how do we relate to each other? With Christ. Christ, there's nothing superficial about Christ. There's nothing shallow about Christ. We have everything in common with each other because we have Christ. The most profound, the heaviest thing, the most valuable thing, we have that together. We have that in common. If we had nothing else in common, yet we only have Christ, we have everything in common. We have both come to know the love and grace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've both come to know the, the power of the gospel. We have both come to know of this, of this God who speaks to us and who guides us and who promises us abundant life, not just here, but for eternity. We both know him. We both love him. We both serve. We have everything in common. God brings those kinds of people together. Thank God for that. Thank God for friends like that, that I can relate to you and that you could relate to me on the most profound thing in the universe, Christ himself. There's nothing to be taken lightly about that. Christ himself says in John chapter 15, this is hours before he's about to go to the cross hours before he goes to the cross. And he says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's so amazing that he, he doesn't say spouse. 
He doesn't say child. He says friend. It's so interesting that he uses that word there. He does that very intentionally. There's nothing to be minimized about friendship. Nothing. You know, when the Bible says it's not good for man to be alone, immediately we think of marriage, which is true. Because in the context, that's exactly what, what happens when we see in Genesis. God says it's not good for man to be alone. God creates Eve for Adam, marriage. But when we look throughout all of the scriptures, what we find is that the, the, uh, the response to it's not good for someone to be alone, the response to that is not only marriage. That's not the only meaningful relationship that we all have. We have parents. We have children. We have spouses. We have friends. When God tells us it's not good for one to be alone, it's not only marriage that can help with that. It's not only marriage. That's not the only relationship that can fulfill that, that can, that can help with that. Case in point, married people, do you still have friends? Yes. Of course. Friendship is so valuable. Friendship is so powerful. We need people like this that Paul has in his life. We need people like that who can prove to be a good comfort and great comfort to us. People who can point us to Christ. People who can walk with us in our hardest of times. People who will say, you know what? This is right. This is wrong. This is who Christ is. Let's walk together. We need friends. And we thank God for friends that God has put the body of Christ together. That we would have one another like this. Paul has, say it this way, Again, Paul's life markedly different, right? It's just what, what Paul went through, what Paul accomplished, what, what the Lord accomplished through Paul, I should say. Um, it's just different. It's just different than anybody else that we know. Yet Paul, who seems so different than everybody else, who seems so, you know, quote unquote, far above and ahead than everybody else, he needed friends. He was not above having friends. He himself, by his own admission, he would tell you, he would say, according to the scriptures too, he would say, though I know Christ has never left me nor forsaken me, though I know Christ to be my best friend, though I know this, he himself has told us many times, things got very, very difficult. Most of his life was very, very difficult after he came to know Christ. And yet, there were, or there were also times where he felt lonely. He felt alone. He felt abandoned. And yet he was still able to say, I've got friends. There are people who were there, people that he could relate to, people who grew up Jewish, as he talks about these couple people here, people like, again, Aristarchus, uh, Mark, Barnabas, Justice. These people who kind of understood what it was like to grow up Jewish, what, it was, what they understood, what it was like to, to now know Christ, what it was understood to relate in Christ. Thank God for friends. The prayer verse um, of the chapter, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Take time to pray. Take time to be thankful for the friends that God has given you, for the people that God has placed around you. Sometimes we get very, very familiar with our friends. Familiar in the sense, not in, in, in a bad way. What I mean by that is this, you know, Jesus... Uh, he says when he's visiting his hometown uh, and he's, you know, he's, he's preaching, he's, you know, he's praying for people and it says that he's not, able to do, he's not able to perform many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And their lack of faith came from what? Familiarity. 
I said, don't we know who this guy is? Don't we know him? We do. He's the one, don't we, like his father, we know his father, the carpenter. We know his mother. We know his brothers and sisters. We know this little baby Jesus walking around here. Who is he, you know, claiming to be the Messiah? Who is he claiming to, to perform these miracles? Who is this guy? We already know him. Familiarity. And it says, because of their lack of faith, because they saw him, they're like, we already know you. We know who you are. It says that lack of faith prevented miracles from Christ. There's too much familiarity there. And sometimes we see each other, you know, some, some of you guys, we all, most of you guys grew up together. You know each other, you know each other really, really well. And that's good. That's a beautiful thing. You'd be surprised how many people outside of this community have something like that. Yet the problem is sometimes we see each other in, in a way that prevents us from seeing how Christ sees us. Oh, I didn't know who that person is. I know how that person is. It gets very easy to disrespect one another. It gets very easy to, to, to really minimize one another. It gets very easy to be, to be really familiar in the sense of like, I don't already know you. Who, how can God use you? Yeah, you know, like we may not say that, but how we treat each other might say that. So take time to be thankful for the ones that God has placed around you. Take time to be watchful for your friends. Take time to be devoted to pray for one another. To say, God, thank you for the people that you put in my life. Thank you for people who can speak into my life. Thank you for people that I can walk with. Thank you for people that I can relate to on this journey to knowing you more. Take time to thank God for friends because we need them. You need them. I need them. We need each other. Thank God for friends. Number two, thank God for forgiveness. So Paul mentions Mark, uh, the cousin or, or relative of Barnabas, and that the church should welcome him uh, per the instructions that, that they've received. And so why does Paul have to say this? Why does Paul have to, you know, kind of send instructions? Why does Paul have to mention, hey, you know, when, when you guys see him, make sure you welcome him. Why does he have to kind of, why does he have to say that? You know, you would think that if somebody is coming, that they would already, you know, welcome him. Uh, let's all turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse uh, 36. And it says, again, that's Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Uh, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and he had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We can go back to Colossians. So, in Acts chapter 15, Paul is, you know, has this idea, all right, Paul, or he's going to, uh, to Barnabas, he says, all right, Barnabas, let's go back to all the churches that where we preached, uh, let's just, you know, check in on them, see how they're doing. Uh, let's encourage them, you know, just to just check in and see how everything is going, see how the ministry, see how the churches are doing. And Barnabas says, okay, let's do that. I'm going to bring my relative with me. I'm going to bring Mark. Paul says, no, absolutely not. And the reason for that is because apparently the last time that they went out, the last time that they were doing ministry, uh, partway through, Mark decides that he's out. Mark decides that he's done. We don't know exactly why. Uh, we can only kind of guess, but, you know, maybe Mark was homesick. You know, maybe Mark was, 
Um, you know, he just saw just how difficult things were getting. Again, Paul's life, you know, traveling with Paul is not exactly easy. So maybe he began to see just how hard and how difficult, how, you know, the persecution, maybe he began to think this is just too much. Uh, maybe he's having second thoughts, you know, not just about ministry, maybe about the faith or, you know, who knows? We don't know exactly what it is that's happened. By the way, side note, this happens to be the same Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark later on. Same one. So we don't know in the middle of this ministry, though, what happened, why it is that Mark just decides to just abandon ship. He says, I'm out. I'm done. So Paul, when he's about to go out again and, and Barnabas says, yeah, let's bring this guy with us again. Paul says, no. Why would we bring this guy? Last time he jumped ship. Like we're going out to encourage the churches. That's not exactly encouraging when the guy that you bring along just jumps ship. So why would we bring this guy? It doesn't make sense. And so they have such a sharp disagreement that it says that they split. It says that Paul now chose Silas and they go on to these churches. Uh, Barnabas took Mark and they went on to these churches. So they have this big disagreement and they say, you know what? Okay, you guys go this way. We'll go this way and we'll continue the work. Okay. Now, Paul, obviously, uh, very serious about the ministry, very serious about the church, very serious about the kingdom of his Lord, right? and, and rightfully so, as he should be. He's very serious about that, very zealous about that. And so when it comes time to this, you know, uh, to, to, to figure out how they're going to do this ministry, he's, no, I'm not, I, I can't allow this to happen. This doesn't make sense. I'm not going to take this risk. So we see this zeal. We see this passion. We see this, um, this seriousness for the gospel. But what we also see from Paul is that that seriousness, that zeal, doesn't harden his heart towards the gospel that he's been preaching. It doesn't harden his heart towards this forgiveness that he's been talking about. To the very, the, the very letter that he's writing to the Colossians, if you guys remember back in chapter 3, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So the very thing that Paul has been preaching about, now he's in this position to give that very forgiveness. And he does. So that seriousness that he has about the gospel, that zealousness that he had, that zeal that he has for the gospel, doesn't harden his heart to the very message that he's preaching. What he's talking about, he wants to do. We said that uh, last week, and we'll say it again, to be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Paul, in all of us, we hear this a lot. We hear this phrase, speak the truth in love, right? Truth in love, truth in love, truth in love, truth in love. Truth by itself is just harsh. If you know people who are just very, very direct, like 100% of the time, very, very direct, that's just harsh. Like if someone is just always blunt with you 100% of the time, it just, it just, it's, it's harsh. Yet love without truth is so shallow. If there is no truth in your relationships, if there is no like depth into your relationship, there's no really knowing the real you. Everything is just always surface level. Everything is just always like just kind formalities. This is superficial. It's shallow. The word of God tells us both. Truth in love. Not 50-50, 100-100. Supposed to have both. Paul speaks the truth. He says, I don't think this is a good idea to bring him. And yet Paul is not above 
forgiving Mark? Reconciling with Mark? He writes upon Mark's behalf at the end of his letter. He says, you've received instructions about him, Colossian church. If you see him, receive him well. Welcome him. Why does Paul have to write that in there? Maybe they, maybe the Colossian church heard about Mark. Maybe Mark has a reputation. Maybe Mark, you know, is known for ditching. Maybe Mark has been known as like, oh, he's the guy that he's not really about it. Paul speaks on his behalf and says, if you see him, receive him well. Welcome him. In his letter to Philemon, directly to Philemon, he says, uh, my fellow co-workers, and he, li he lists a bunch of names, one of them being Mark. Mark is now a fellow co-worker of Paul. In his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, those uh, during Paul's final imprisonment. So this is one of the last letters, letters that Paul wrote right before he's killed. He writes to Timothy and he says, when you come, bring Mark with you. He's proved to be a great help to me. He's been a great help to me. They're reconciled. They're good. The themes that we've been covering, who is God? What is this, uh, or what's his view of the church? Number three, what's this gospel message that completely saves and satisfies us? And number four, in light of those first three themes, how then should we respond? Right? How, do we, how are we supposed to respond in light of who God is, in light of you know, what he's done for us, in light of his, uh, this gospel message that has saved us and satisfied us, in light of this compassion and mercy and kindness and gentleness that God has shown us, in light of this forgiveness that God has showed us, God has showed us how then are we supposed to respond? with the same kindness and compassion and mercy and forgiveness that God has shown us. We show it to others. Paul forgave because Paul has been forgiven. Just as we are to forgive, as we have been forgiven. And we thank God for forgiveness. We thank God that we have been so forgiven. We thank God that God doesn't just give us the call to forgive one another. God doesn't just give us the command to forgive one another. God gives us the power to forgive one another because God forgave us. Because God has already demonstrated it, because God has already given it to us, and because God continuously gives it to us, we are able to forgive. Not just called to, but empowered to. And it's so important that we do. Like sometimes we think that the people that we need to forgive are the ones who are far away, the ones who are outside, the ones who are... No, the people you need to forgive the most are the ones you rub shoulders against the most. And when you're in the body of Christ, when you're doing life together, when the bulk of your friends are in the body of Christ, when the bulk of your friends are sitting in the same room as you, when the bulk of your friends are around you, when you're doing life together, those are the people who have the greatest chance to irritate you, to offend you? The people around you are the ones that you have the greatest chance to irritate, to offend. So the people around you are the ones who need to be forgiven the most. It's your friends who need to be forgiven constantly. Because it's your friends that irritate you. It's your friends that, that, that bother you. It's your friends that offend you. It's your friends that sin against you. The more time you spend with each other, it's going to happen. You're going to offend each other. You're going to irritate each other. And Paul says, bear with one another in love. Forgive one another. And so we remember the forgiveness that we have received so that we can forgive. So we thank God, not just for our friends, not just for the necessity of our friends, but we thank God for the forgiveness that we have received that we may forgive as well. Close with this. This is why it's so important that we thank God. 
for forgiveness, why we thank God for our friends. In Mark chapter 3, there is a story of Jesus. He's casting out a demon. He casts out a demon out of someone, and you know the, the, the demon leaves. And the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and so on, they see it happen and they say, well, this happened because Jesus is possessed by the prince of demons. He's possessed by Beelzebub. And so their logic was that because Jesus is possessed by like this chief demon, that he has authority over these little demons, over these smaller demons, and that's why he was able to cast this demon out. That was their logic. And Jesus says, are you serious? He says, you think I'm, I'm possessed by Beelzebub and that's why I wouldn't... Why, why would Satan drive out another demon? Does that make sense? It's like Jesus, I can only imagine Jesus' face is like, are you serious? He says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So it makes zero sense, zero logic, that some chief demon would then drive out some little demon. That's fighting against itself. That's a kingdom divided. Point out, the reason why I bring that story up is that this, is this. That means even the demonic, even Satan, understands the power of unity. That he's not going to fight against his own kingdom. He's not going to... Why, why would, again, why would one demon cast out another demon? It makes zero sense. That's a kingdom divided. So even Satan in his kingdom understands the importance and the power of unity. Which is why he fights so hard to keep it from happening in the church. Why is it there's, there's so much bickering within the church? So much offense within the church. Why is it that we're so quick? You know what? Forget those people. I'm done. I'm out. You know, I don't really have to do life with those people. I just, I'll just show up on Sunday. I'll just write my little check for 10% and I'll just, I'm out. Why is it that they, like, when we think of, oh, it's so much easier to just to do life with those who don't know Christ. It's so much easier to just, why is it that it's so hard? Why it feels so hard to forgive one another? Why it feels so hard to do life with one another? Because Satan understands the power of a unified church and he will do whatever he can to keep it from happening. He knows that a kingdom divided will not stand. And so he will do whatever he can to make sure that we're not thankful for one another, to make sure that we, do, that, that we don't forgive each other, that we will harbor that offense, that we will harbor that bitterness, that we will just hold on to that little thing, that little irritant, that little whatever. We will, until that thing grows, till that root grows, he will do whatever he can to keep a church from being united. That's why we have to take time to be thankful for one another. We have to take time to forgive one another actively, knowing that there is a Satan who will fight against the unified church. Don't give him an open door. Don't give Satan an open door. So if there is offense, if there is bitterness, if there is something that just is like, you know what? At the moment, maybe I thought it was not that deep, but I keep thinking about it. And I keep like, it's that deep. Forgive reconcile. Take time to pray for that person. Lord, forgive me, forgive them, and thank you for these people. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for putting me in a family where we can relate on something so much deeper than, than something superficial. That we can relate because of you, 